0: This evening I'll begin with a series of uh, talks and also uh, some of the morning reflections will be uh, the same topic on the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening. And just to list those for you, mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy... Joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. One of the clearest and most useful ways to uh, describe practice is in terms of these seven factors of enlightenment. These are the natural qualities that the Buddha described as the constituents of a proper spiritual practice. It said that one of the short in, it said in one of the short suttas uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya that once when the Buddha was quite gravely ill, he asked Venerable Mahakunda, to recite the seven factors of enlightenment to him. And in the sutta it says that in such a way was the Buddha cured of his illness. So we'll begin our exploration this evening in what might be a little bit of an unusual way for some of you, with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama. So sitting comfortably as you all are, not looking at your notebooks or Thinking about writing anything down. Close your eyes lightly, gently. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind had let fly the poison arrows of greed and aversion and delusion at Siddhartha Gotama. The arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara then shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? Where and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? And the Bodhisatta, the just-about-to-be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and penetrating sense of investigation, accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination, and the flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, all of it balanced within the deep power and the cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama, sitting under the bow tree that night, with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain, with all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart, perfectly in place. In response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, in his amazing grace, simply reached down, and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over this about-to-be Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha sat on that night over 2,500 years ago, but we sit and we practice with sincerity and with determination. At home alone, maybe with your sangha, with your practice community, and right here and now. In this retreat. As awakening beings, we practice, and as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were also perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these capacities of heart and mind continue To develop and to deepen and to mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually, that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening, we'll explore the quality or the factor of mind that's really the most fundamental underlying factor in our practice. And it's the first factor of awakening or the first factor of enlightenment, mindfulness. So whether your practice here and now is rooted in insight practice, vipassana practice, or samatha, concentration practice, or some uh, metta practice maybe, or some combination of these various approaches to practice, this really is a fundamental underlying factor of all of our practice. As we explore together this evening, allow the words that I'll be offering to be a touch point or a kind of pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourself, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart, rather than from the head. And so in support of this, it's helpful to really relax very deeply in and through the body. So let's just take a moment or two right now to drop into the body, relaxing, and with a very bright, easy attention. Relaxing from head to toe. Letting the whole body, heart, and mind just very simply, deeply relax into a simple presence with an open heart, an open mind, simply hearing. So mindfulness. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation. The very qualities that we have here in retreat. A pervasive and deep Mindfulness, along with a calm and concentrated mind, are really key factors for the mind and heart to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother the great mother of all of the factors of mind and heart that are necessary for awakening. In fact, really, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor of mind that gives birth to all of the other factors necessary for liberation the Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. Combining the two, we could say that mindfulness is the chief mother, the chief mother of our practice. And when it's really uh, begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. Sometimes it's translated as memory or to remember. So if we break that word down, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body mind and heart I think that for many of us at least at times we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember to not directly freshly purely connect to the present moment's experience but Rather to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion some years ago, someone asked, the Dhamma discussion with a group of friends, someone asked, What makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? Well, it's really a good question, and especially these days, because it's quite a common word uh, used these days, the mindfulness movement in all sorts of different venues. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? I think that sometimes the way it's uh, used these days, some of its depth and, uh, and and its potency is somewhat dissipated. So mindfulness as a spiritual practice or the root of our spiritual practice. The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning in this case, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is. Without the forethought of concepts, past experience, ideas of how we think it is or how we think it should be or how it could be. The great Indian teacher... Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way it really is which at times may appear so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but rather to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come very close, and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects right into the object. And yet, it's not a sticky or fixed sort of connection. Mindful attention is a clear, fluid connection that lights up an object just long enough and just enough and just deep enough to really come to know it. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And at its best, purely receptive in its relationship to whatever is presenting itself in the present moment. That's not so easy, actually. And of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, moving the body, and all the sensations connected to that. Seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that may be wonderful and easy to be with. And we give attention to experience that may be unpleasant, that might be difficult to be with. We open to it all, all of it. No parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. Mindfulness is about living in the action living in the action of the body, the heart, and the mind, living in the present moment's experience. So in a sense, we forget our self. We, in a sense, lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added, and without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or maybe actually recreating a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way things are really. And we're living in an idea. The idea of I. The idea of me and mine. Instead of living in the action. The magic and the great beauty, actually, of mindfulness is that it takes us out of illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again and again in reactivity and attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Analayo puts it this way in his book Satipatthana and the Direct Path to Realization. The Venerable Analayo says this about sati mindfulness. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for satipatthana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses the contents of experience nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the de-automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. <coughs> this technique of simple recognition <coughs> constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us, all of us want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us hope and maybe even assume that much of our life experience at any given time is pretty permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we want life to suit our, fa- our fa- uh, passing fancies. We want it to suit our expectations. We want it to suit our deepest desires. And so, so many people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish this through external experience. By getting this or that. Or getting him or her. Doing this and that. Going here and there. And we go for, we try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly, constantly changing world of our senses and our thoughts, as well as through the myriad, constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our lives. As many of you know, at least at times, this really doesn't work for a sustained contentment, ease, and happiness. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary existence of pleasure. Our ordinary experience, excuse me, of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and we look closely in order to sense and see and know our experience directly. It's through our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritually perfect or spiritually right moment than the one we're in, we have then truly and wholly embraced our life. And infused it with the our energy for awakening. Our practice, as I've already said in one way, is one of deep intimacy. the deepest intimacy really with our own experiences, which, as our practice develops, as it expands and matures, becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment? and this present moment, and this present moment. This is a basic foundation for all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, the E-Y-E-I? The ear, the nose, the tongue, touch. How is it in experiencing the mind, the heart. How is it really? Not what you hope it is or not what you want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experience is what allows clarity and really true understanding, insight to arise. To just simply and naturally arise which it inevitably does we don't do anything to make this happen the truth is actually not very far away at all it's right here it's ever present it's immediately close always and everywhere right here right now And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago I was teaching a class about mindfulness in Taos, New Mexico, where I live, a weekly class. Every week the students would come in and share something at the beginning of the class from their experience of the week that had to do with the particular uh, exploration that we'd uh, uh, explored the week before. So one class, a student came in, and she said, this morning I was watering my garden. She said, I've watered my garden many, many times, many times. But this morning, it was like the first time I was ever watering my garden. well, we all took that in and appreciated it. And then she said, and then her mind took a big leap. And then she said, how have we survived for so long without being mindful? Terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. That was quite a moment for all of us in the class to take that in. The Buddha Dharma is about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. One way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are glasses that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas and uh, preconceptions and opinions and judgments, hopes, fears, and often similar past experiences. So for instance, an experience that probably each of us in this room has had at some point. You meet someone new, brand new. And you don't see them as they actually are. Maybe you see them in relationship to the thoughts you're having about them in that moment. How much you, now you don't know this person at all, but how much you think you like them. Or how much you think you're attracted to them. Or how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe maybe they remind you of somebody else. So you see this new person, brand new person, in relationship to the similar qualities that you're thinking about in another person. Or maybe you see this new person in relationship to how you hope they'll be what you might want from them, what you hope you'll get from them, or hope you won't get from them. And of course, with all of this, you're not experiencing this person that you've just met for the very first time just simply as they are. So, have you ever gotten to know somebody and found out that, in fact, they weren't at all like your imagined idea about, ideas about them were when you very first met them. Without mindfulness, everything that we perceive is kind of like this. Everything we see and taste and hear and touch and smell and think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thoughts and habit patterns. Meditation practice that's grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to see things as they really, truly are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's often called beginner's mind. And my favorite story to share about beginner's mind is about one of my grandsons when he was two and a half years old. His mother and I were taking a walk with him, in Pennsylvania, where they had recently moved. They had recently moved there. We were going down the hill behind the house, and this little two and a half year old boy saw a pine cone on the ground. He'd never seen one before. He picked it up. Well, he started looking at it, turning it every which way. Every which way. Then he stuck it up to his nose and he's smelling it all over. Every side and part of it. Then he stuck his tongue out and he's licking the pine cone, tasting it all over. Really investigating this new, new phenomena that he'd never seen before. Well, his mom and I were watching this. (laughs) And we dutifully, as a good grandmother and mother, uh, I guess we're supposed to do, we thought, was say, Alex, that's a pine cone. And he looked up at us kind of quizzically, a little bit of a frown on his face. But he was a good boy. He said, pine cone. And then he went on with his exploration of what this really is. his fresh, open, beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind. Not that we're going to lick and smell and do all of that necessarily with everything. But this is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or actually that we can relearn and bring it into our life as a whole. And it's transformative. It's transformative and potentially deeply healing. One definition of these teachings and these practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. There are four domains of mindfulness or four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. So this evening we'll explore just the first of these domains which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it or interpretations of it. And of course there are many and varied um, and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And as you all know, one of the primary one of our primary um, orientations to the body in our practice is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible via mindfulness of breath, is potentially profound. In making the simple sensations of an in-breath, an out-breath at the nostrils, or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly, or at the heart center, or the sensorial experience of the breath coming into and moving through and then back out of the whole body, I've been deeply grateful, and even awed at times, at the depth and the breath of the purification of the heart and mind that happens, as well as for what comes to be sensed, seen, and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So now just, just for a moment, if your eyes aren't already closed, close your eyes just for a moment. And let the attention drop into your breath. Mindfully absorb into the simple sensations of an in-breath and out-breath, either in the area of the nostrils or the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the chest area or the whole body breathing. And connecting with this breath sensation with as little self as possible. And now just very simply notice Are you trying to control or trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? And it's very important to notice this without judgment, without self-recrimination. Just notice. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. So the body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures, not our kind of ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, ongoing, and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body in getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs turning, lifting, and carrying. Even bringing mindfulness of the body and the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking in the morning or the evening and before or after a nap. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement. Beginning the possibility of beginning to see the postures and the movement in the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be known as just simply standing? Sitting as just simply sitting. Walking as just simply walking. Without the layer of I am, or the internal feeling of, this is me sitting, this is me walking, etc. Many years ago now, one of my Burmese teachers, the Venerable Sayada Sayada Upandita, asked me in a practice interview meeting with him, he said, is there a man or a woman, or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking and standing and sitting or any bodily sensation? Well, when he asked me this question, for just a brief moment I was kind of caught by the question, which, in retrospect, I realize was a kind of test of my practice at the time. And very quickly in that practice meeting, There was a spontaneous reflection and a response to Sayadaw. And I said, no, no, there's no woman or man or anybody known when I'm directly connected with and mindful of whatever bodily phenomena is happening. This is a very good observation and question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So for instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention or the energy of volition begins. Where it starts from and how it feels in the body. I don't in some Independent, mysteriously isolated way, stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm or take a step or speak particular words. If we think and we feel that our actions come solely from the place of a separated, isolated, a separate, isolated I and me, we will eventually or maybe pretty quickly experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience, which also may often also be clearly or subtly related to past experience. As mindful awareness of the body and the body blossoms, there's a natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler causes of suffering. And it begins to take place, it begins to take hold quite naturally, which can then open our heart to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to ourself and in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging within you to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? Some years ago now, I had a student uh, whose name was Roy. He was a very deeply dedicated, long-time practitioner right up until his dying moment. And this man died of AIDS-related complications some years ago. Every day, I would go and sit with him in the hospital for a little while in the afternoon. And one day when I was in there with him, as he was lying in his bed, and at that point there was not much left of his body. Roy stretched his arm up, overhead, very slowly. And once it got straight up into the air, towards the ceiling, he started turning it around and back and forth, very slowly. And looking at it, carefully, with a great and very deep interest. This went on for a while. And then he said in a very cool and odd way, Wow. That's all he said. Wow. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are all totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger, or the sensation of coolness on our skin, or the liking or disliking of some experience, or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment by moment. Choices are made. But in truth, these too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements and the process of intention, that we actually begin to directly experience this truth. The next domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body, all 32 of them. as it's taught in the classical Buddhist texts. Hair, skin, muscles, bones, all the various internal organs and fluids. In your practice here in retreat, you certainly most likely have uh, noticed them as they make themselves known, or various, various ones of them, as they make themselves known maybe the intestine, the bladder, heart, lungs, maybe the liver, maybe mucus, saliva, etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice is one that isn't very often taught here in the West. Though actually it can be quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification with this body being a solid entity and it being mine, being me. And I have no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body, even during these first days of retreat for some of you and for others of you who have been here for many days, noticed various parts of the body. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? How identified are you with the hair on your head or the lack of it? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive processes therein? or to a moment or many moments of the experience of the heart how do you experience your skin this bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body how do you how often do you experience your nails your teeth saliva sweat mucus or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness. A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non non rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body, without the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful aspect of practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha abiding contemplating the body as a body internally externally he or she abides independent not clinging to anything in the world this is how a meditator or a yogi abides contemplating the body as a body so now just for a moment or a couple of moments consider how do you identify yourself For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, rupa being the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. I'm a man, I'm gender fluid, I'm transgender, I'm thin or fat or not too thin or not too fat, I'm tall or short or of average height, I'm good looking, I'm beautiful, I'm ugly, I'm plain, I'm attractive, I'm unattractive, I'm dark skinned, I'm light skinned, I have good skin, I have bad skin. My nose is large, my nose is too big, my nose is small, I have a cute nose, I'm wrinkled and old and weak, or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned, and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years, or just within days, or just within moments in our mind even though we engage tremendous, tremendous effort, energy, and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments. No place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. So a a personal example In the last, oh, five years or so, I've been shrinking noticeably. I used to identify identify myself as a woman of average height. Well, I've shrunk more than two inches. Now I'm a short person and getting shorter and shorter and shorter. (laughs) Another and potentially profound insight insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies in essence are no different than any other form no different than any other rupa our human form is of the same elements as every other form nothing more, nothing less So potentially a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid, static entity and to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window opening us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of form, of rupa. One aspect of this reality of how it really is. How what this body, how and what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials or the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air, or wind, air and wind are the same, through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. Sensations that we experience all of the time when we're sitting, standing, lying down, and when the body is moving. So this evening I'd like to just mention these sensations, each of which directly corresponds to the specific or particular characteristic of each of the four great elements. And I'm sure that you will recognize many of these sensations from your own experience of being in a body. The sensorial characteristics of the earth element, they are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The sensorial characteristics of the fire element, heat, Warmth, cold, coolness, the sensorial characteristics of the air or wind element, supporting, pushing, and the sensorial, uh, well, that's all, that's all of them actually, the four of them. All and each of these bodily sensations are very available to us for experiencing and to be mindful of at any moment. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? this body in its elemental nature, essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly maybe not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting such as this. But in fact, the truth of the matter is there are many, many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds, other creatures, and certainly many of the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this very directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times have quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as that all things do as and after they uh, they die and once when i was in a retreat with a few friends on cape cod here in massachusetts where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months of practice together I had the great good fortune, maybe it's good fortune only in the world of Dhamma practice, but I felt like I had the great good fortune to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Every day for a month, I walked down to that body, and I sat with it for a little while every day, observing and letting in the process of decomposition and decay which in this particular instance was happening very quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was really a heart-mind-changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho who uh, up until some years ago now was the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England and who is the most senior Western monk in the Thai uh, forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. He tells about a a time when he was living in a monastery in Thailand and he asked to be able to uh, spend part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, although he said they were pretty reluctant, but they did let him go in. And he said all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. Actually, he used the word fully assaulted. He said that the first thing that hit him was the smell, which almost drove him to run out the door, he said. But he just stayed just stayed there mindfully present and he said little by little it became tolerable. Just a smell, just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and very deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart. As he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him, He mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he called it, which he at first found puzzling. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body that was in front of him could explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped it would not do while he was there, and it didn't. He said that when he went back out onto the street after this experience in the morgue, he said he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. This isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, Living and non living are mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Probably first and foremost our own form. And also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and almost and often unrecognized desire for an attachment for instance, to forms that please us, forms that we're close to and care about, forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that are amusing or interesting to us, or simply the taken-for-granted familiar forms. I think what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change and won't die. Which, if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting closely, intimately, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, mind, And body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. And what we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. I think that much of the drama of our thought Feelings and actions begins with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body is not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance, which is one aspect of metta an act of unconditional acceptance with grace and at least with some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself, not wanting things to be different and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience of the body. In such moments, we feel and intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very simple, ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat and, of course, also outside of a formal retreat setting. Maybe we wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love. So in that sense, as a holy act we open the door clearly sensing and knowing what the wrist is doing. Maybe we feel our body contract turning away from cold or maybe retracting from very hot weather or a hot room and we catch ourselves and consciously, with mindful awareness, rise up to meet the experience. The choice to be mindfully aware is often an act of maybe some degree of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment to feel and know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. Someone once said, it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, I think that's who said this, the body is tremendously homesick for us and it waits patiently for our return. though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life, full of know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we need no training to really be fully alive, that we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness. The body an excellent meditation subject. It will always tell the truth. So for instance, if you break a leg or if we're physically ill in some way, the body's not going to give off a pleasant feeling. Also, it doesn't have the capability of getting lost in the past or it has not the capability of projecting into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. Also, a simple, mindful presence in the body can often be a safe haven when our thoughts and our emotions maybe are raging and maybe feeling just too overpowering. be with. And as I think we all experience, at least to some degree, we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we each find the way. And because each of us has experienced very specific conditioning along the way of our lives. Many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge for each of us in relationship to this conditioning. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful, and the simple, universal truths of the way of things. This is what sets us free. And from the Buddha, there is one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. So in closing the talk this evening, I'd like to offer you a wonderful and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that you can offer yourselves anytime. and it's called A Single Excellent Night. It's from the Majima Nikaya. Let me not revive the past, or on the future build my hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know this and be sure of it invincibly, unshakably today the effort must be made tomorrow death may come who knows no bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away but one who dwells thus ardently relentlessly by day by night it is in her it is in him the peaceful sage has said who has had a single excellent night And let's sit silently for just a moment. And as we do on Dhamma Talk evenings, we close the evening with the chanting of the Reflections on the Sharing of Blessings, which is on the other side of the Refuges and Precepts, in case you're not familiar with them.